Hello there and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo, and this is episode number 49, being recorded on October 27th, 2021. The big story of the week, of course, being the World Series, and we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about a couple of the awards handed out by the by the MLB this year, uh, and we'll talk about the NFL, the bigger games in the NFL this week. But we're going to start off with some pre- pretty serious stuff, and uh, that is what happened with the Chicago Blackhawks, in case you don't know. First off, uh, Blackhawks president and GM Stan Bowman steps down after over 20 years with the organization, after 12 years as their general manager and one year as team president. And Bowman has resigned because of the investigation, the independent investigation that concluded that not only Bowman, but a number of the members of the Blackhawks organization knew of an alleged sexual assault by then Blackhawks assistant coach Brad Aldrich back in 2010. The team has been fined $2 million by the NHL. Bowman is actually the son of Scotty Bowman, probably the NHL's greatest all-time coach. Nine Stanley Cup titles. Was in Montreal for year for many years. Helped start the St. Louis Blues. Won a Stanley Cup in Pittsburgh. Won three titles in Detroit. And Bowman, well. Stan Bowman has actually helped the Blackhawks win three Stanley Cup titles uh, in the last uh, 12 years, over his tenure. He also steps down as general manager of Team USA for the 2022 Olympics. So here is what we know, or at least what we believe to know, from this independent investigation. So Bowman claims to have known of the sexual assault by former assistant coach Brad Aldrich. This was either on May 8th or 9th, 2010. This was in the midst of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Not that 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 should actually matter, but unfortunately it does. It it did make a difference in the cover-up, perhaps. The Blackhawks were en route to their first Stanley Cup title in 49 years. So Bowman says he knew, told then-team president John McDonough, who is no longer working in the NHL, and uh, there were a few members of the organization who are no longer working in the NHL, and Commissioner Bettman said that he would discuss, uh, would have to discuss anything with them before they could possibly re-enter the league. So the assault allegedly took place on either May 8th or May 9th of 2010. And the the victim is is unnamed, but it was someone we know, we know it was a player, 
and it was someone who was recalled from the Blackhawks AHL affiliate, the, Rice, the Rockford Ice Hogs, uh, to their roster for the Stanley Cup playoffs. The player, uh, within a week of the incident, eventually spoke with team counselor uh, Jim Gary. I believe his official title is mental skills coordinator and team counselor. Uh, He eventually spoke with Jim Gary after the player briefly mentioned the incident to a skating coach. Uh, So later in the month, I believe it was May 23rd, uh, within an hour after the Blackhawks swept the San Jose Sharks to go to the Stanley Cup Final, seven members of the Blackhawks organization, at least, including John McDonough, including Jim Gary, including Stan Bowman, and including then-head coach Joel Quenville, who was with the St. Louis Blues for many years, then helped lead the Blackhawks to all three of those Stanley Cup titles, and is now the coach of the Florida Panthers. All of these gentlemen met to discuss the allegation. Gentlemen's a strong word, considering they knew about all of this. So no action was taken immediately. Well, obviously no action was taken immediately. But it was another three weeks until June 14th, which was probably around the very end of the season. The season may have been over by then. It was on June 14th that McDonough told Blackhawks Human Resources about the assault and then gave Aldrich the option to either face an investigation or resign. Now that's something that probably would not be done today, given everything that's changed in the last 11 years. And because obviously if you hear that, you even if it's in an independent organization, it's not a, you would think there would be automatic jail time. You think there would be automatic, or, or at least an, an actual investigation. They would have to investigate no matter what, regardless of whether he resigned. But regardless, Aldrich did resign. He chose to resign. Now, this decision by John McDonough had ramifications not only against now, against the Blackhawks organization, but in 2014, Aldrich was sentenced to nine months in jail for later having sexual contact with uh, someone between the ages of 16 and 18 at a high school at which he volunteered for their hockey team in Michigan. We'll talk a little more about that later, but the actual, uh, well, the 2010 alleged assault, uh, regarding that, then general manager, and I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kevin Cheveldayoff, uh, then Matt GM of the Blackhawks, and now the GM of the Winnipeg Jets, along with Joel Quenville, have denied knowing about the assault at the time the player reported it. Both Cheveldayoff and Quenville have denied the have denied having known about the report. Report, although the independent investigation does say otherwise, Quenville is scheduled to meet with Commissioner Bettman at the league's offices in New York uh, tomorrow, as I record this, Thursday. It should also be noted uh, that some of the accounts make it seem that 
not just the Blackhawks organization, but Quenville in particular, emphasized the importance of the timing of the assault at, uh, during the meeting. During that meeting in uh, 2010, after the Blackhawks won the conference, emphasized the importance of winning the Stanley Cup. That's the, that's the allegation. That's what uh, at least one person has said. And while it is of great importance to win the Stanley Cup when your job is on the line, clearly not the most important thing on the table when someone alleges sexual assault. And uh, look at it this way. There, there are... A number of cases where this has happened. I mean, the most notable, of course, has to be probably Joe Paterno. If Joe Paterno was fired, then I can only imagine where this goes. Because Joe Paterno was... And again, it's an inexcusable action to cover it up in the first place. But if, if someone as beloved as Joe Paterno by, by Penn State was fired, then th this should probably lead to a firing for everyone involved who, who decided to cover this up. Because... you're not only not helping the victim, you are not helping ev any potential future victim, like the high schooler in Michigan. As a matter of fact, that person, who I, be I believe is still unnamed, filed suit in Michigan against the Blackhawks. I don't know if that has been settled, but I know it was this year that that person filed suit in Michigan and, and claimed that uh, the Blackhawks were responsible for the assault on the student. And it, in a way, at least the people who knew about it, in, in a way, that's true. If Joe Paterno was fired, Joel Quenville should be fired, Joel Quenville should be fired by the Florida Panthers. And again, it shouldn't matter that this was 11 years ago. It shouldn't matter that it didn't take place while he coached the Panthers, that he was coaching a team, uh, coaching a different team at the time. And it shouldn't matter that he was a bystander and not the person accused of sexual assault. Because, can't emphasize enough, when you let someone like that go free it opens the door for that person to continue such horrible behavior and impact negatively the lives of so many others. And obviously at a time where, you know, Deshaun Watson's been accused by, what, 20 women of sexual assault, misconduct, whatever, something terrible... And instead of talking about a suspension, let alone an arrest or charges, we're talking about him getting perhaps traded to the Dolphins. And again, that is a different league, but it's still part of the sports hierarchy. That kind of lowers the credibility of of trying to of anyone trying to handle this in sports in professional sports you know you can't treat these things like they're 
business decisions, you're not treating it as, you know, we're trying to win the Stanley Cup. We got a quarterback on the field. At, at that point, what you're trying to do for your team comes second. And again, all these guys, uh, Joel Quenville. Joel Quenville is Hall of Fame coach. Uh, Deshaun Watson, very talented player. Stan Bowman did a, a great job hockey-wise as a general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks. They won the Stanley Cup three times in a span of six seasons. Great team, great organization. Uh, from a hockey standpoint, great job. But is it really worth one, or in this case, at least at least two people and their families and their friends being tormented over all of this? Or for in, in Deshaun Watson's case, perhaps twenty-two. There have been twenty-two civil complaints filed against him. And unfortunately, again, it's not treated like, you know, these are complaints coming from human beings. It's more like something that just needs to be settled. Something that just needs to be settled so we can sweep this under the rug, put it all away. And unfortunately, we've seen that in a lot of places in sports. We're seeing it a ton in the Big Ten, with all these accusations in Michigan, and in Michigan State, and Ohio State, and, and of course previously at Penn State, and, and not to single out the Big Ten, but that's just where we've tended to see them. We've seen it with the Blackhawks now. I'd heard about the, I, and I'd heard about this last summer, this this whole Blackhawks thing, and it had been going on for. It's been 11 years, but I'm at least glad that the NHL did something about it and it didn't just stand by like some people have, and they actually finally took some action. We're going to take a break, we're going to come back, we're going to lighten up the mood, and we're going to talk about the World Series. We are back, we are discussing the World Series the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros, first time they've ever faced each other in the World Series. Um, as I record this, the Braves are up one game to none after a dominating 6-2 win in Houston in Game 1. And despite an outstanding performance by the Braves, overwhelming from start to finish, I'm going to take the Houston Astros in seven games to win this World Series. And I think I probably say that mostly because of Charlie Morton getting knocked out. Uh, Charlie Morton, former Astro, clutch pitcher through, I think, four innings in relief to get the save in Game 7 of the World Series four years ago in Los Angeles. Clutch elimination game pitcher with the Rays. He's done it with the Braves this year. Leaves Game 1 after two and a third innings pitched. He is done for the year, will not return in the World Series uh, with a broken fibula. 
due to a line drive in the second inning by Yuli Gurriel. That's how that's how powerful a line drive it was that it was on a hop and it still broke his fibula. It was I think like 115 miles an hour off the bat. Charlie Morton is somehow such a warrior that he didn't even leave the game for like a full inning. I don't think he even realized it until it looked like he just pushed off wrong. Well, not even necessarily wrong, but it just looked, it was just worse because of the situation the leg was in. In the third, he pitched well, but I, I would say he's definitely the Braves' best pitcher, most clutch pitcher, most experienced pitcher. And I think without him, when he would have thrown probably in game five and maybe out of the bullpen in six and or seven, depending on how long the series would have gone uh, with him, that is a huge loss for them. Uh, A.J. Minter really, uh, as he did in the NLCS, really helped out the Braves, went two and two-thirds, went longer than Morton even did, allowed one earned run, and the Braves... Won it by a score of 6-2. to two. Jorge Soler becomes the first player ever to lead off a World Series with a home run. Not a World Series game. Lead off the World Series with a home run. First batter. Uh, Framber Valdez, and that's obviously a big one. When the Braves get to Framber Valdez after an eight-inning outing, a masterpiece in Boston in Game 5 of the ALCS, Valdez allows five earned runs, including a pair of two-run homers, well, including a, a two-run homer and a solo homer over two-plus innings after really just an, a, the performance of his career so far against the Red Sox in Game 5. Jorge Soler's homer, uh, Adam Duvall, a two-run homer, uh, two big midseason acquisitions. Austin Riley doubled one in. Uh, Braves got one late on a sack fly by Freddie Freeman. And then we we just go back to the route to this World Series. So much, uh, so many, so much backstory. First off, Eddie Rosario and Jordan Alvarez with outstanding League Championship Series. Rosario ties the Major League record with 14 hits in a single postseason series, and even then he did it. In, he is the only person to do it in six games or fewer. Another outstanding midseason acquisition from Cleveland. Cleveland probably misses him. The Twins probably miss him. Alvarez. Uh, the, the cool thing you can say, even if you really despise the Astros after what after the cheating scandal, their biggest producers have actually been guys who were not on that 17 team. And Jordan Alvarez has been, I think Jordan Alvarez should scare you more than anyone in that lineup. He was phenomenal in the ALCS. Tripled for the, good enough that he actually tripled. Great pure hitter, great power hitter. Uh, carried that team, especially over the last three games. For the Astros, in their rotation, uh, Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia finally provided great starting pitching for them. When you think about the Astros, it's so impressive that they got into the World Series after losing Verlander to injury for the year, after losing Cole a year and a half ago to free agency, letting Wade Miley walk, 
letting Keuchel walk. We haven't really seen much of uh, McCullers uh, letting Colin McHugh walk. A lot of their best pitchers they've they've let go, and obviously it still seems to work out. Valdez and Garcia have been outstanding at times during this postseason. Total domination for the Astros in the ALCS from the eighth inning of Game 4 onward. After Jose Altuve hit the game-tying homer in the eighth at Fenway, I think I think the Astros had outscored the Red Sox 22-1, to starting with that home run to end the series, which is ridiculous. Total turnaround from Games 2 and 3, where the Red Sox obliterated them. Uh, for the Braves, even without... Even without Max Scherzer pitching in Game 6, being unable to go in Game 6 against the Braves in the NLCS, Walker Buehler was still a better pitcher this year, and he allowed four runs over three and two-thirds, including the three-run homer to Eddie Rosario that ended up being the pennant winner. Brian Snicker, finally in the World Series as a manager, has been with this organization for 44 years, going back to 1977. He's been the Braves manager for the last six seasons. And uh, though I will say, uh, Freddy Gonzalez actually did a pretty good job. Some people might forget that Freddy Gonzalez managed the Braves before Bobby Cox did, before Brian Snicker did. And that actually kind of gets my, gets my point there. Brian Snicker worked with Bobby Cox for so many years that he really is the heir apparent to him in demeanor, in style, uh, and... And just wait, the way the the team is run, he's old school, uh, and just beloved within the organization. And Snicker, both Snicker and Dusty Baker, have really gotten where they where they have gotten uh, due to the influence of Hank Aaron. Now, of course, we talk about Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron passed earlier this year, and this is such a big thing for the Braves, uh, not only if they could win for Hank Aaron, but they have not been to the World Series in 22 years. Uh, Dusty Baker in the World Series for his his second time as a manager got, uh, both of these guys got the vote of confidence from Aaron. Snicker really got the, uh, the Braves' job because originally he was a player in the Braves minor league or in, in the Braves in the minor leagues and Aaron I think told him he was just not really good enough to make it to the majors and that's where he started his coaching career Baker was uh, I believe drafted and signed definitely signed by the Braves back in 1967 Hank Aaron was with the team then he was uh, high in the Braves uh, executive management at the time of uh, Brian Snicker's uh, hiring within the organization as a coach. And uh, both of these guys, really old school, and and, and it, it's pretty appropriate that this is the oldest managerial matchup uh, combined in World Series history. Both guys trying to win for the first time. And until last year, Dusty Baker was a guy who received a lot of criticism for managing teams that were very good but really could not get over the hump. 
Of course, he managed the Giants back in 2002 and got them to the World Series, but they blew a 5-0 lead in Game 6 in Anaheim. Angels won that night, and they won the next night to win the World Series. Baker was the manager of the Cubs with the the Bartman incident. Not that it wasn't Bartman's fault. I wouldn't necessarily say, and I wouldn't say it was Baker's fault either. And I wouldn't even pin it entirely on Alex Gonzalez, who made that error in that inning. It was a team loss. But the Cubs, of course, lost games six and seven of the NLCS at home and missed the chance to go to the World Series. Baker was manager of the Reds, who made the playoffs multiple times under his leadership, but never won a playoff series. He's the manager of the Nationals, who made the playoffs, but never won a playoff series under him. They struggled. Eventually, they would win the World Series under Davey Martinez. But Dusty Baker does not get enough credit, really, as a manager or as or as a player, for that matter. Very good player. As a matter of fact, you know, I was looking at it last night. Dusty Baker actually was the first player ever to win NLCS MVP for the Dodgers back. It was for the Dodgers back in 1977. So that shows you how long his his run in baseball really is. So it's his second World Series appearance, first in the AL. I, th- I think he's one of only nine managers ever to do that, to, to, w- to r- win both pennants. And it's the first time he's reached the World Series in 19 years. That's how long ago it was that his son, I think Brandon Baker, I, th- I think is my age. And you may remember back in 2002, he was, I want to say he was like four, and he was a bat boy for the Giants running towards the plate in the middle of play, and J.T. Snow comes in and picks him up. Uh, Baker thought Baker thought time was called and the play was dead, and Snow comes, up, comes and picks him up and carries him back to the dugout somehow and still touches home plate. So anyway, that kid was about four. I think we're about the same age. So that's how long ago that it was that Dusty Baker was last in the World Series. And Baker deserves so much credit for guiding this team. The Astros took a a real baseball lifer, someone who was beloved, who could kind of take the heat for everything that the Astros had done in 2017 and anything they'd allegedly done since then, and just lead this organization. Remember last year, they nearly won the American League pennant. They were down three games to none, came back, and forced a Game 7 against the Rays, and nearly won that. Now this year, they're in the World Series, and so much of that credit should go to Dusty Baker, a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame someday as uh, a fine player, but but probably as a manager. Um, I I will say from the the whole standpoint of the Astros being in the World Series in the first year where everybody, where all the fans are back and they've gotten uh, the the booing that you would have figured that they would have had last year and the fan criticism in person that they would have had if not for the pandemic. Credit to them getting to the World Series because it shows that they really are that talented a team that maybe they could have won the World Series if not for 
the cameras. Doesn't excuse it. Doesn't doesn't mean they earned that title, but it does mean they have a very talented ball club, and it also shows that the guys who have started playing for them, your Don Alvarez in particular, and Valdez and Garcia, the guys who have joined the organization since then, have had just as big an impact, if not greater, than the guys who were there in 2017. Now, while I would imagine most baseball fans that that aren't rooting for either team, well, most baseball fans, other than Braves fans or Astros fans, are rooting against the Astros because of what transpired. And it's kind of funny because this, this is a bit of a stretch, but it would actually be somewhat poetic if the Braves beat the Astros, for the Braves to have to go through the Astros after Hank Aaron's passing, not not just because the Braves would win, but because I've heard people talk about how Hank Aaron was very silently irked about the way Barry Bonds broke his record. And that's perhaps why Aaron wasn't there in person. But, I mean, for someone who cheated the game in Barry Bonds as opposed to someone who treated it with such class and dignity and respect as Hank Aaron, who put up with so much, just silently seething in everything that Bonds did, it would be kind of appropriate if the Braves actually went through a team with that had the biggest cheating scandal in the history of the sport. It, it would be rather, it would be somewhat poetic, really. The, another interesting thing about this series is that this is kind of, geographically speaking, kind of like the 2016 World Series. That's probably the last time we had something like this, in that it's not exactly a Subway Series or you know Angels-Dodgers or you know Giants-A's or Cubs-White Sox, Orioles-Nationals. It's not exactly a series where you have in-state rivals or very, very close rivals going up against each other. But, in 2016, when it was the Cubs in Cleveland, Cubs in Cleveland are... Uh, Chicago and Cleveland are maybe five, four, five, six hours apart by car. Atlanta and Houston, I think, are about... It's at 11 hours by car. But the difference is... Between Atlanta and Houston is the Deep South. For the record, this is only the second time, technically, this is only the second time there has been a World Series played uh, entirely in the South between two Southern teams. Technically, the Astros and the Washington Nationals in 2019, because Mason Dixon line is Pennsylvania and Maryland. D.C. is technically part of the South, although some people might not consider it that. Maybe maybe might consider it Mid-Atlantic. But... I'm not sure if Texas is classified as Deep South, but Houston is far enough east that it's close to the Gulf. Uh, Anyway, Atlanta and Houston, both, if not in the Deep South, then at least close. And the thing is, everywhere in between there, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, parts of Georgia, kind of parts of Arkansas, parts of Tennessee too, that's kind of where the fan bases divide. The fan base divides probably somewhere, I would say, in Mississippi. 
And so there are probably a lot of people that I would bet in, I would probably say within the state of Mississippi that are fan that, that have there. There's a mix of fans from both teams. And also on top of that, these are fan bases that are not quite as old as, you know, Red Sox, Cardinals, Yankees, Cubs, Phillies, Pirates, these teams that have been ingrained in their cities for, for since the beginning of AL-NL competition. The Braves only moved to Atlanta in 1967. The Astros were only founded as the Colt 45s in 1962. So there could be people in Alabama who are rooting for the Astros or people in Louisiana rooting for the Braves or whatever just because of the, the, the family ties that go on from that. So I just find that very interesting. I just find that really fascinating. Because if you watch Game 1, you could hear a lot of Braves fans during the introductions. A lot of Braves fans as they announced the, the starting lineups. So it, it's something, something that I think is really cool. Because you may remember Game 7 of the 2016 World Series in Cleveland. Ton of Cubs fans there. And not just Bill Murray. Ton of Cubs fans that, that flooded Cleveland. Now, granted... That's probably also because the Cubs hadn't won the World Series in 108 years and hadn't been since World War II. But Braves Braves have a passionate fan base. They haven't been in the World Series in 22 years, haven't won in 26. And then the Astros also have a very passionate fan base that has received, that has gotten their, their biggest stretch of success, their greatest stretch of, of prolonged success since 2017 because they've won three pennants now in five years so it it should be a really really fun world series for fans and for otherwise i will say one more thing for the actual on-field aspect of it besides charlie morton the braves in this postseason have only started max freed or ian anderson otherwise it's been a bullpen game They've only had three real starting pitchers in this postseason, and on occasion they'll go with a bullpen game. Usually I think they'll use Jesse Chavez as their opener. I, I think Drew Smiley is kind of their long mid-relief guy in that instance. Minter can do that as well. Tyler Matzik can do that as well. A couple of guys, Will Smith in, in the closer role. Three guys who made a big impact in the NLCS. And So that's probably why I would say the Astros would win this series because the Astros still have Valdez for at least one more start. They're going to have Garcia for at least two starts. Well, they're going to have Garcia for two starts and, and maybe at, coming out of the bullpen. If Zach Greinke is hopefully healthy, they could really make a difference. I think the pitching actually starts to favor the Astros with Charlie Morton out. Braves have a good rotation, but I think that's how it works couple of big awards handed out this week in the MLB. Shohei Otani wins the Commissioner's Historic Achievement Award, which is not awarded annually. This is not a regularly awarded trophy or, or celebration. It's been awarded since 1998, but again, not annually. It has been given many times. It seems, I looked it up many times. It's given to an all-time great player, when he announces his retirement. So it was given to Cal Ripken Jr. when he retired, along with Tony Gwynn. They retired in the same year. 
Derek Jeter when he retired. It was given to McGuire and Sosa when during the home run chase. I, I believe they were the first. Barry Bonds for his 2001 records. The 2001 Mariners for tying the single-season wins record in the regular season. But it seems like a lot of the time it is for real people who have made a great impact on the game as a player and who are moving off into retirement. So this is pretty significant that this is going to Otani when he is very briefly into his major league career. Because this is a guy who is a fantastic power hitter, was near the top of the league this year, could could be the MVP, I'm not sure he will be, but he's at least going to be probably top three in voting at the very least. Got hurt late, unfortunately, but had a breakout season. Outstanding power hitter, good fielder, and a, a, very, a very good pitcher. I don't know if he'll win the Cy Young, but it's... Uh, he is a guy who has made a, a tremendous impact on the game and brought a lot of positivity to the game in the wake of the Astros scandal and with, with unfortunately, Mike Trout being out for, for so many months this year. If Trout was was not hurt this year, the Angels very well... Angels probably would have made the playoffs and maybe made a run in the postseason, actually. But Otani was really someone who uplifted a lot of baseball fans this summer and and. and inspired the next generation of kids uh, of kids who want to play baseball. And the funny thing is there is for all the, you know, Deion Sanders, Bo Jackson who played multiple sports, guys like that, uh, there is only one person uh, not in terms of how well he has played necessarily, but only one person in terms of style of play uh, to which Otani can be compared, to whom Otani can be compared, and that's Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, who pitched for six years in Boston, I think, I think pitched occasionally in his first few years in New York. But Babe Ruth, who actually owned this one, I mean, people probably know that Babe Ruth was a pitcher for a number of years. Some people might not realize that until Whitey Ford broke it, it was like 35, 34, 35 years that I think Babe Ruth held the consecutive scoreless innings pitched record for the World Series. An outstanding left-hander who actually hit 29 home runs in 1919, the year before uh, the live ball era even started, which just shows his power. So it's really an impressive achievement and and a guy who certainly deserved it. And one more is that Nelson Cruz was was given the Roberto Clemente Award. Now, Cruz grew up in the northwestern Dominican Republic and brought dentists and optometrists to his town. I I believe it's a very rural area and brought dental and eye care to the people of his hometown. He also paid for a police station, uh, helped fund a clinic, paid for an ambulance, a fire truck, medical supplies, and food during the pandemic which obviously you know, it's bad enough when you're here, or bad enough when you're anywhere, but when you're in a more rural area, and double the damage, rural area on an island, it 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 cannot be easy to get supplies to you. So these were people were probably really cut off. 
and it's something very lovely for Cruz, who is very well-liked around the league. And it's a major accomplishment, especially because we talk about the impact of Roberto Clemente and what he means to Latin American ballplayers and just Latin Americans in general, not just for making an impact on the game, but for making an impact as a philanthropist and and doing so much with his platform to just help other people. So uh, Nelson Cruz being someone from the Caribbean, that's probably also a pretty big accomplishment and, and something I, I would hope he appreciates. And I, I would have to imagine, I would have to imagine he does. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the NFL and week seven of the NFL season. All right. Week seven of the NFL season is over. Let's go over the highlights. First off, Cleveland Browns on Thursday night football, defeat the Denver Broncos by a score of 17-14. to 14. Somehow, despite Baker Mayfield being injured, the Browns just absolutely being decimated in terms of injuries, and their third-string running back, DeErnest Johnson, in the backfield with Case Keenum, a QB. Keenum managed the game well enough, 21 of 33, 199 yards and a touchdown. Johnson, 22 carries, 146 yards and a touchdown. Ridiculous. The Browns improved to four and three, and it's probably just a few weeks. I, I don't think Mayfield's injury is supposed to be too serious, but this is probably just a few weeks of trying to hold everybody off at, for a wild card spot at this point because the believe it or not, the Bengals and the Ravens are then out of the two teams to beat in the AFC North. Moving along the Titans and the Chiefs in one of the more surprising finishes of the week. Titans defeat the Chiefs 27-3, which shows that the Titans now have now beaten both the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills, probably the two favorites to win the AFC this year, Cleveland perhaps being the third. And what's even more impressive is that they did it, and Derrick Henry did not do much in this game. Derrick Henry had 86 yards which is not bad, but 86 yards on 29 carries. That's less than three yards a carry. However, he did throw a touchdown to Michael Pruitt. Uh, Ryan Tannehill, good afternoon. 21 of 27 for 270 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. And a lot like last year, the Chiefs looked at their worst because Patrick Holmes could not perform, or perform well at least. Went 20 of 35 for 206 yards, no touchdowns, one pick. And the big issue, a lot of that was forced by just a weak offensive line in terms of pass protection. He was sacked four times, fumbled twice, lost one of them, and before being pulled as a precaution in the fourth quarter after a hit. I was working, I was working a game this past weekend, and so I didn't, really get a good look at the 1 o'clock games. I, I think this is a 1 o'clock game, uh, or really the 4 o'clock games for that matter. And as soon as I heard 27-3 and someone said, yeah, Mahomes got pulled, I figured, oh, okay, well, the Titans probably won because you know, Mahomes was out for most of the game. No, this was in the fourth quarter. This was already a blowout. And just Titans picked apart the Chiefs. And again, 27 points is not terrible defensively, but it was all 27 came in the first half somehow. Uh, A.J. Brown went off, eight catches, 133 yards, and a touchdown. 
So again, I think we mentioned this last time, the Titans are not, uh, we mentioned this with the Bills game, that they're not just a team that is going to give the ball to Henry on the first two downs and then go to play action on third. Uh, it's a team that has a much better, much more diverse offense than you might think and can take out some of the, the powerhouses in the division. I would say now, I mean, the Colts are, are finally starting to win again, but I would say the Titans are the team to beat in the AFC South. And if there is one team in that division that can that could compete for the Super Bowl, it could be the Tennessee Titans. Um, Giants defeat the Panthers 25-3. to Daniel Jones makes a one-handed catch. Giants run Philly-Philly. And... Maybe the biggest surprise of all, Sam Darnold benched in the fourth quarter, I believe, for P.J. Walker. Darnold really struggled through a pick in the first half. I think he had like 80, you know, something like 85 yards at halftime. Giants offense really opened up in the second half. They only had five points at halftime. That's right, they got a safety. Uh, payback for Graham Gano, who alleged, I believe, in the previous week that the Panthers had misdiagnosed an injury of his back in 2018, which may have hurt his career. And I think he was actually named Special Teams Player of the Week in the NFC. So the Giants go to 2-5, and five, and the Panthers go to 3-4, and four, I believe. The Panthers have really struggled since... Yeah, the Panthers go to 3-4. and four. Panthers have really struggled since starting 3-0. and oh. And then once they got to Dallas... That was it. Jones had an okay day, 23 of 33, 203 yards and a touchdown. Giants were not great on the ground, but they were good enough, and which is even tougher for them when uh, Jabril Peppers is done for the year, which probably heightens their draft order, heightens their spot in the draft order, just because it gives you, if you're a Giants fan, it gives you hope and sheer, utter sadness at the same time. You don't know where you really are. Um, moving to AFC North, Bengals beat the Ravens 41-17. to I said that the Bengals should have drafted Panay Sewell, and so far I'm wrong because Jamar Chase has 754 yards receiving in seven games to start the season. Joe Burrow, it turns out, is fine. Turns out he has enough protection. He went 23 of 38 for 416 and three touchdowns. They scored 28 points in the second half. This was in Baltimore. They beat the Ravens on the road convincingly. Jamar Chase had over 200 yards on just eight catches and a touchdown. And again, I, I mean, experience-wise, I can at least say the Titans have got to the AFC Championship game two years ago. The Bengals are maybe the most unpredictable team in the AFC right now at 5-2 and two in that division. But by going in and beating Baltimore, it proves that they are actually a legitimate contender to win the AFC North. The Raiders hold off the Eagles 33-22. Derek Carr completes 31-34 of 34 passes, 323, two TDs. Raiders are, the Raiders are actually 5-2. and two. Even after everything that happened with Gruden, the Raiders are 5-2, and two and they are first in the AFC West. Part of that is due to how poorly the Chiefs have performed, but the Raiders are 5-2 and two with a new head coach hired in the interim 
in the midst of a major scandal, and somehow the Raiders have gotten past it, at least through the first couple of weeks of that scandal. They've they've gotten around it. The Cardinals. How about the Cardinals? <laughs> the Cardinals are seven and zero. They beat the Texans thirty-one to five. Granted, they should have destroyed them anyway, but they beat the Texans thirty-one to five. The only other time the Cardinals started the year seven and zero, nineteen seventy-four. They were the St. Louis Cardinals. They won their division that year. They got knocked out in the divisional round by the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, it was also a different playoff format at that time, and. That shows the accomplishment, really. This is the only the second time the Cardinals have started 7-0 in their history because the Cardinals have, now that the Cubs have won, have the longest drought, longest championship drought of any of the four, of any team in the four major North American pro sports leagues. They have not won since 1947, and neither the 1947 world champion Cardinals nor the other world championship team for the Cardinals in 1925, both of whom played in Chicago at the time, uh, started 7-0. Neither of those teams started 7-0, nor did the 2008 NFC champion Cardinals, which, I mean, makes sense uh, considering they went 9-7 and and were, along with the 2011 Giants, the worst regular season team record-wise ever to reach the Super Bowl. None of those three teams started better than 3-0 to begin their season, which is a great indicator for Cardinal fans, historically speaking. I will say they do not have an easy schedule. And remember, you have the extra game this year, so nothing is guaranteed. They very well could finish 7-10. and However, they, here's their remaining schedule. Green Bay at home Thursday night. That's going to be a, a crazy game. In San Francisco... They have beaten the Niners already, although that was at home. They play the Panthers at home. Panthers are in disarray at the moment. They go to Seattle, the Seahawks, who lost a real tight game to the Saints this week, 13-10 at home on Monday Night Football. Then they go to Chicago, kind of an unpredictable team. I don't know. If if Fields finally puts it together by then, maybe the Bears have a shot. Then they host the Rams. That might that probably will be the toughest game out of all of them. They go to Detroit, and Detroit is actually, again, they're 0-7, but they're not as bad as you think. Honestly, they've been in a lot of their games, just a matter of finishing them. Then they host the Colts. Then they go to Dallas. Okay, well, actually, now that I think about it, maybe that's the one game that's tougher than the Rams. I'm not sure. They could go either way. And then they host the Seahawks. So that's not an easy schedule, because you've got to have at least three playoff teams on that schedule. Rams being one, Packers being one, and the Cowboys being one. Well, it's a maybe in terms of Indy or Seattle. Maybe Carolina can still run the table, or San Francisco. But they, the Cardinals should win, at the very least, I would say, 10 games. I would say they should go at least 10-7 and seven this year. And it really has been a total effort because... They've scored 30 or more points in six of their seven games this year, and they've allowed 20 or fewer in six of their seven games this year. And their competition has not been bad either. I'm not going to say they've faced a a good team every week. Obviously, they just faced the Texans, and they're awful, but not terrible. Four more games I want to discuss. 
Patriots defeat the Jets 54-13. to This is pretty remarkable because the last time the Patriots scored this many points, um, they only had three Super Bowls, and I say only, but still, they've won three since then. It's the most points scored by the Patriots since 2013. And again, I say uh, Mac Jones is not Tom Brady, but I have made the comparison that Mac Jones is uh, 2000, kind of like Tom Brady in 2001, where he relies more on his defense, uh, maybe doesn't have as strong an arm, or have as much, definitely does not have much as much experience, but a guy who can manage the game well if you just give him a little time. While the Jets are obviously terrible this year, it was it's something we had not seen in a long time. I I even remember when Tom Brady was a quarterback for the Patriots. Yeah, the the Patriots would beat the Jets a lot, but I don't remember I don't remember that many games that were decided by forty one points or even close to that. There were probably a lot of blowouts, but I don't remember. But those were, I would figure maybe it was more like 28 to 6 or something like that. I would not think of a, a, a 54 to 13 game between the Patriots and the Jets. I thought I heard that the last time the Pats put up 40 on the Jets was 2010, which is funny because 2010 was also the year that the Jets went up to Foxborough and beat the Patriots to punch their ticket to the AFC Championship game. But that's... As bad as the Jets are, it's a great sign for Patriots fans, and it's a great sign that Mac Jones can put up 54 points in a game against anybody. For the Jets, bad news. Zach Wilson out roughly a month, they believe. Mike White will start Sunday. The Jets, after somehow not signing Joe Flacco in the offseason trade a sixth rounder to the Eagles just to get him back. And even then, he's still not going to start. I don't know why. Rams defeat the Lions by a score of 28-19. Jared Goff, in his return to L.A., threw a 63-yard touchdown early on, but also reminded everybody why he was traded to Detroit, and he threw a pair of interceptions. Stafford was great, 28-41, 334, three touchdowns. Cooper Cup... 10 catches for 156 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, this, this probably should have been a, a wider margin of victory. I think that shows, the again, the Lions are not that bad, or not as bad as their record indicates, but big payback for Matt Stafford and the Rams. Buccaneers dominate the Bears 38-3. It, believe it or not, first time ever, that Tom Brady, Michigan quarterback, has faced an Ohio State quarterback in the NFL. That's how much Ohio State QBs have struggled in the pros because the few guys I can think of are like Haskins, Fields, Kent Graham. Not There are not a lot of great, uh, even close to great NFL quarterbacks coming out of Ohio State. But some, but somehow it took twenty, the better part of twenty-two seasons for Brady to actually face one in the NFL. Uh, Brady also becomes the first QB to reach six hundred passing touchdowns. Really wanted to hold on to this one. I think we probably all know the story now that Mike Evans handed it to a fan, probably unknowingly, 
They were able to get the ball back. And uh, Tom Brady really a model of consistency when you consider his only 50 touchdown season was 2007 was the uh, Super Bowl well the this the well they got to the Super Bowl of course the undefeated regular season and he lobbed up uh, an NFL record 20 touchdown passes for Randy Moss and yeah that's the only 50 touchdown season he's ever had you know, we talk about Hank Aaron, we talk about consistency. Hank Aaron is the all-time lead, well, second all-time in home runs. Never had 50 home runs in a single season for his career. He's just that consistent. And that is just, that is, that is Tom Brady in a, in a nutshell. Just consistency, excellent managerial skills, and it, it, again, not the most, not the most accurate quarterback of all time, not the best deep ball passer, but just the best at winning. That's the most important thing, just the best at winning. Uh, last one, Sunday Night Football, Colts win in San Francisco, a rainy night, uh, in, well, in Santa Clara, by a score of 30-18. to 18. Colts improved to 3-4. and four. They have uh, bounced back from a tough start. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo looked... Uh, rough 16-27-181. And Colts and the Niners, two teams that have underachieved this year. Colts 3-4, and four, Niners 2-4. and four. I can't believe that the Niners are actually 0-3 at home. But the Colts get back into it in the AFC South. And that does it for, at the, for us this week. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.